Well, why don't we work our way over to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We've made it to the believer and the new heaven and new earth. That's our title today. The believer and the new heaven and new earth. This is what I call part one. We've got several parts, as you will see very soon. The section we begin studying, Revelation 21, actually goes through 21 and in through 22 as well, which is a rather lengthy section. And today we're just going to focus on the first seven verses of chapter 21. Revelation 21, 1 through 7, begins, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Heavenly Father, we have your words in front of us again today. What a blessing it is to do this. That you give us a, a opportunity each week to open up your word and spend time together in it. Uh, thank you, Lord, for that. And thank you that these words as well are true and faithful. And as we spend our time looking into them, Lord, we, of course, need your help to understand them best, that uh, we might find uh, appropriate applications from these pages and, and live in light of what you are doing to your honor and to your glory. So thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's been very good for us to go through this study together, the future that we share together as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, as I said when we first started nearly four months ago, there's been 13 other sermons already uh, on this topic. Um, there is a way to map out what God has in store for us using his word. And I've been trying to show you that, that we don't need to rely on the experiences of other people or speculation in order to understand the future. Uh, God has spelled it out. And all we've done is follow a little along as we've studied through. And I think it's been very informative for us and very good for us. Um, as you know, there are those who claim to have died and entered into heaven and returned with a message about heaven. Uh, basically, they want you convinced that heaven is real. Alright? And that they've seen things that the Bible hasn't told us about. And, and I'm not going to try to repeat all that I've said about that, except to say that I believe 
that God is trustworthy and that he has given us sufficient uh, information in his word. Uh, it's not necessary for me to have extra biblical support from other people's experiences to, to shore up my faith. I don't know about you, but I don't need that. Uh, I think God's word is sufficient to support my, my faith. Matter of fact, I somewhat uh, um, hesitate to hold to what I hear from people's experiences because usually on close examination, I find that there is something in the message that they are sharing that has a contradiction to God's word. It's not uncommon for me to see that, and personally, it nullifies the message as far as I'm concerned if they come with a message that contradicts what God says in his word. Uh, all this to say is that there has been a lot of confusion over the years uh, as to the description of heaven. And uh, I think there's a very good reason why that uh, confusion exists. You see, most of the time we go armed about with just a verse or a two, or two verses of the Bible, and we draw a conclusion from that. So, oh, I got this piece and that piece, and so it must be all this. And they base it on things like that. One thing very easy to confuse is the present heaven with the future heaven. That is the biggie that I see more times than not. The Bible calls it the new heaven, and that's where we are today. And I'm going to show you things about it today and uh, make it very clear that we are studying the new heaven at this moment. All right? There is a present heaven right now. It is not the new heaven. That's different. And I want to spell that out as clear as I can say. And one thing I really like about speaking about the new heaven today is that no one can say that they've ever been there. If anyone ever tells you they've been there, give them that look like, you've got to be crazy. The place doesn't exist yet. Alright? It's not possible to have gone to a place that doesn't even exist yet. Uh, we're going to see that in the future, God will make this new heaven. And that's the section we're in now. And so, you can't say that you've been to the new heaven. When I was young, uh, it was one of our goals as kids, uh, kind of a thing we like to do. If it snowed overnight, living in Indiana, that was not so uncommon. Uh, if it snowed overnight, uh, we wanted to be the first ones out there to stomp our way through all that beautiful, clean, untouched snow. My mom never had that picturesque yard of, of pure white snow that just beautiful you want to take a picture of. It looked more like troops had stomped through there because that's the way we were. We couldn't find a, if there was a patch that nobody stepped in, we stepped in it. We made a point of that. Uh, um, what we're going to look at today is a place that no one has stepped in yet. All right? It doesn't have uh, any so-called heavenly visitors in it. Uh, there are no fingerprints. On the pearly gates, there are no footprints on the streets of gold. So it's a brand new place to talk about. And that's where we enter verse number, uh, chapter number 21 today. Uh, let, me, let me express one more time so we get this understood. I am, I've been sharing with you heaven. And heaven 
is, is represented in Scripture in two different places. There is a present heaven. There is a, a earth, uh, there is a heaven that we talk of now. If we should uh, uh, depart from this world, we go off to be in heaven, right? It's a present heaven. Scripture says quite a bit about it, actually. Um, it identifies it as a place where God's throne is. It identifies it as a place where the true temple is. The book of Hebrews will give you support for that. It has an emerald rainbow around the throne. Early part of Revelation describes that. There is a sea of glass in the, new, in the present heaven. And that's Revelation 15 speaks of that. It has many rooms in it. John 14. Remember, Jesus goes to prepare a place for you. Uh, that speaks of many rooms. And when we depart from this earth, we go to be with Christ. Now, I could add my speculation to that. Everyone else gets to. So, uh, I find a couple of interesting verses that intrigue me. Um, in Job 38, it speaks about storehouses for the snow and for the hail. And I think, hmm. In Deuteronomy 28, it speaks about the storehouse of rain in heaven. So I've got this curiosity about me, and I told you it's speculation, so I'm honest with you, that somewhere up there, there might be rooms with doors, you know, doors on the front with labels that say snow. Now, I think that would be nice for those who like to ski, uh, for Eskimos and others who want to go to heaven, make sure they're comfortable too. Uh, just go spend some time in the snow room for a while. I don't know. I just read those verses and it kind of piques my curiosity if whether or not there be storerooms up there that we will uh, find very, very interesting. Uh, I don't know. But I do know our description of the present heaven is limited. All that I've told you so far about uh, the throne of God being there, the true temple being there, uh, the sea of glass and things. Those are the things the Lord has told us about the present heaven. The present heaven. Okay? Now, when we walk into this section, we start talking about the new heaven. The present heaven is a limited place. In time, it's limited. The present heaven has a duration where it's going to end. We saw that last week when we were in chapter 20. That the present heaven will flee away from the presence of the Lord. It will dissolve. It will be gone. It will be destroyed. Uh, that day is coming. Matter of fact, the time that we're going to actually spend in the present heaven. Let's just say, for example, the Lord should come today. That'd be okay, right? If the Lord should come for us today and take us to be with Him, then for the next seven years we will spend in the present heaven. We will be there during that duration we call the tribulation period. We'll be in heaven. And while we're there, we're going to be very busy. A very busy seven years of an award ceremony and the wedding of the church and things of that nature. But then at the end of that, we come back with the Lord. We've seen that too. And we come back with the Lord to spend the next thousand years on this earth with Him. So that means we only had seven years up there. And it's interesting how that gets all of our attention, doesn't it? All our descriptions and everything, we just put it in there. Because we, we assume that, well, if we die, we just go up to heaven. And that's the way we are forever and ever and ever and ever. And we're finding Scripture has a whole lot more to show us than that. 
So we're going to spend seven years, at least seven years, in the, in the, uh, in the present heaven. And then the present heaven and the present earth at the end of the millennial period, chapter 20 of Revelation tells us, it will flee away from the face, from the presence of the Lord, actually, uh, and it will be seen no more. That was Revelation 20, uh, verse number oh, 11. I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it, whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So they're done. All right. So today, let's walk into this understanding that the present heaven and all that we have, have talked about is now through. We start with a new heaven today. Okay? You see where I've gone with this to bring us to this day. We start with a new heaven here. Uh, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Now this is where we pull out most of our concepts about the present heaven. What do we talk about the present heaven being like? Streets of gold, right? What do we talk about the present heaven like? Well, there's no crying there. There's no mourning there. There's all, uh, we use those verses all the time. And we reference the present heaven. All of them are in reference to the new heaven. Okay? Just following it as it says. So I'm going to give you three themes given in these, uh, these two chapters, 21 and 22, about the new heaven and the new earth. Today, the first seven, we're going to talk about the believer and the presence of God. And that's going to be our focus. Uh, next week, unless we're there, but next week, we're going to talk about the believer in the city of God, verses 9 through 27. And then the third week out, we're going to talk about the believer and his service to God. Those three aspects are, are emphasized in these chapters. Uh, the presence of God, the description of the place, and our service to him. So I'm going to spread them out over three weeks so we can get them all understood well. Um, the believer in the presence of God is what we want to look at today. And there are three aspects to this as well that I want to emphasize. Uh, a new residence, a new relationship, and you're going to find that interesting, and a new experience. Those three things in the first seven verses. So verse number one says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, that's a present one, and the first earth, that's the one you're standing on right now, passed away. And there is no longer any sea. Now, this is the new heaven that he's going to describe for us. Uh, all that we're going to reference in the next couple of chapters, that's the new heaven. There are some debates, and I, I read of them in the commentaries as I work through studying these things out. Uh, what does new mean? Isn't it funny how people would clamp on one word and say, oh, that sounds like a debate. Uh, and there are, there are those who will write from the perspective that the present heaven and the present earth don't actually completely get destroyed, but that they are, are uh, destroyed on the surface, if you will, the external side of it, and then God remakes it as the new heaven and the new earth. And you will find a lot of commentaries dealing with that very same thing. That's what one side holds to. Another side says, no, 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 no. It says that he will destroy it and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. Just so you know, that's where I'm standing this morning. All right? 
as I start to explain this. Because what he does say, and what he doesn't say, is significant here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He doesn't say a refurbished heaven. He doesn't say a remodeled heaven. He doesn't say a renovated heaven. He doesn't say a reconditioned heaven. He doesn't say a revamped heaven. He doesn't say a restored heaven. He doesn't say a repaired heaven or a rehabilitated heaven. Does he? He doesn't even say a renewed heaven. He doesn't say that word either. doesn't say renewed. Matter of fact, the word new in the Greek means unused. Fresh. All right? Unused. Now, if God wanted to say renewed, he knows how to say those words. Renewed. He can do that. Matter of fact, he even had the Apostle Paul write it in several of his epistles in reference to us being renewed day by day and and we're being renewed into the image of Christ. God knows that word. He didn't use that word, did he? Now, you have to trust me a little bit, don't you? But when you read your your English, does it say re in front of the word new? No. It says new, just like new would be. It says new. God doesn't need to uh, uh, take leftover materials in order to make something, does he? We know that already. Well, he promises a new heaven, a new earth. And that corresponds to everything else related to it, by the way. It has to match, I think, in character and to purpose and all that he has in in store for this new heaven and new earth. And in that, he tells us several things that I think you might find very interesting. And every phrase I'm going to use will come right from that phrase, new heaven, new earth. All right? Go back with me to Isaiah 65 for a second. Isaiah 65. This was part of a Sunday school lesson several weeks ago, and very interesting topic to deal with. In the context of Isaiah 65 and 66, we are talking about the Jews, and we're talking about the millennial kingdom, and yet the Lord gives a, a couple of phrases in here that's very intriguing. Uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Let's look at this verse. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. You see that word create right there in your text? That's the exact same word used in Genesis 1, 1. All right? Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Here he uses the exact same word. So it's not remodeled or anything like that. He says, I create new heavens and a new earth, for the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The question might be now, what former things? In this passage, verse 16, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. He who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Just in its context, I'd back up and say, well, he was talking about those who are on the earth being blessed. Uh, That's former things. 
those who are, are swearing by the earth or in the earth, swearing by God of truth, that's in the present situation to former things. Troubles, troubles are forgotten. They're former things. We see these things recorded for us here, and we say, okay, so the old heavens, the old earth, the old troubles, isn't there a nice advantage to new all of a sudden? Wouldn't you like old troubles to be forgotten? That's one of the benefits of a new place. I just had this thought in my mind, and just a, a thought, but say that there was a, a particular spot on this earth that brought you great grief every time you saw it. Something that broke your heart every time you, you, you remembered what took place there or something like that. No doubt some of us have places like that in our hearts somewhere, in our memory, right? How would you like it to be gone forever? How would you like a refurbished earth where it still sits there? Wouldn't that be hard to forget something forever if it's always in front of you? Just a little thought in my mind. But he says troubles, former troubles are forgotten. Why? Because they're associated with another place. You're not in that place. New heavens. I, I like the association between the new heavens and the fact that the old troubles are gone. He says in the next verse, verse number 18, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Notice in that phrase, he now throws Jerusalem in the picture. Hold on to that. You'll need that in a minute. Right, so that's one thing. I, I like the association between new heavens and new earth and the forgetting of the former things that obviously didn't bring us joy. They were trouble. A second thing, you're in Isaiah 66, verse 22. Maybe just another page or two for you here. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make to endure... Uh, that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, Lord, so your offspring in your name shall endure. Now, we're going to relate a word to the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to use the word endure here. It means to remain. To remain. With that comes concepts like everlasting and forever and words like that, that, that stay. Words that stay. And here the Lord associates that with the new heavens and the new earth. He does not use such words with the present heaven or the present earth. Matter of fact, he mentions that as passing away, doesn't he? Present earth, present heaven, they're passing away. With this new heaven, new earth, he talks about it enduring. Now, this again is a millennial passage related to God's people, the Jews. But he links it, when he talks about his care for them, he links it to a new heaven and a new earth, and he talks about the concept of endurance. The, the present heaven, the present earth will not endure. They will pass away. The new residence will be permanent. Its quality is permanent in every aspect. It's not a temporary place. Now that's good to know too as we start to associate things with the new heaven, it doesn't help us to call the old heaven refurbished or remade and then attach the word endure next to it. Because then you say, okay, well, he remodeled it once before. You ever remodel a house and say, now I'll never touch it again. 
What do you do in five years? You get out the paintbrush again, or you say, ah, I'm just tired of this look, and you go and redo it. God says, the old, old is going to be gone, the new will come, and it will endure. So hang on to the concept of permanent, with this, this picture of the new heaven as well. It's quite a bit different than the old. Now, one more to add, it's in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to be there in a little bit, uh, but I'll just say it to you as we think it. Peter writes, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A place where righteousness dwells. And there's much more to say about that, but here's that simple concept. The character of righteousness will permeate the new heaven and the new earth. Can you imagine an earth where its only characteristic is righteousness? Is that ours now? I don't think so. It will be true of the new earth and the new heaven. So, these qualifications or characteristics, if you will, match beautifully with a new heaven and a new earth. And that's why I was trying to to walk us through that. When he talks about the new heaven and new earth, he gives it qualities that that, uh, speak of that which will endure the character of righteousness and the former things being forgotten. They all match a new heaven, don't they? A new earth. And I like the way he does that all the way through here. But now you notice something as, as I was reading in Revelation 21. Let's back up there again. We notice something in verse number 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem. Now, is this a third place added to the other two we're just studying? We talk about a new heaven, we have a new earth. Again, the commentaries can get a little confusing. It seems to be a third location referenced. It's, matter of fact, a specific place. Can we really take all that God has said in his word as promises he made to Israel and just wipe them off the page when we enter into chapter 21? I've noticed this, and maybe it's just me. But some people are are very um, willing, if you will, to allow the millennial period to be the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to Israel. And I agree with that, in that sense. The millennial period is for God's people to have the land that he's promised them. He allotted this to them, and he's going to keep his word, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm, okay, I'm okay with that. The millennial period's perfect for that, because God has made promises to them. But here's where it's interesting, because I've noticed at least a hint of this, When the millennial period's over, well, the promises are done. Have you ever wondered, then why would God say everlasting with the word promise? Or forever with the word promise? And then only give them a thousand years to enjoy it. That doesn't sound very forever to me. I don't know about you. But let's think for a minute. What were the promises he made to Abraham and to David? A simple review. Genesis seventeen seven. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. How long is everlasting? 
Forever is a good word for it. It, it. It's always. It's without end. Hebrew word here. To be a God to you and your descendants after you. I will make that everlasting covenant God said. In Genesis 17 verse number 8. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He uses the exact same word again, without end. Some people assume that Israel will be allowed to enjoy the covenants for a while, and then, well, you know, after all, we got to think about these guys. They participated in the death of Christ, didn't they? Yeah, and since they also did that, uh, uh, there are some who believe that the promise that God made to them shifted at that point, because they, they, they crucified the Lord, so the promises were then transferred over to the church instead. So the church gets to enjoy the land instead of Israel, and the promises that belong to the church. And of course, we can't see that in a physical way, so we have to turn it into a symbolic thing, and this is where it gets rather murky. All of a sudden, they, their interpretation is very strange. As a result, the blessings and the land and the covenant all belong to us, and Israel's just off the scene. What does God really mean when he says forever? Do you think he meant it when he used such a word? Everlasting? Do you, do you think he, he was just exaggerating a little bit? Like everlasting only means a thousand years? What if God, let's ask this question, just use your, your logical sense here. What if God, who really speaks rather truthfully, doesn't he, uh, said, I will make an everlasting covenant, this will be an everlasting possession, and he really meant everlasting. Did he ever call these things temporary arrangements? No. Did he ever say, well, I'll, I'll make this covenant with you until the millennium is over? No. He said, where are you going with this, Pastor? Watch. If he can create a new earth, could he not also designate Israel's possession of it? What is this new earth for? Hmm. It's a new earth, isn't it? Okay. How dare you say it in a couple of instances? Like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or at least uh, until it ends, and it's replaced by some other arrangement. Is that the way he said that beatitude? No. When did the kingdom of heaven ever cease? It doesn't. But it's the kingdom of heaven. Is there a new heaven? Does the kingdom still exist? Mm-hmm. Okay. When did he say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or at least temporarily, while there is an earth, and then when the earth is gone, that, that uh, blessing is over. Did he ever say that? I don't think he ever did. Sure, blessed are the meek. Let's give them something. The panhandle of Oklahoma. All right? Let's give them something. The Lord doesn't say, I made this promise to you, and then after a thousand years, oh, it's over. Take it off the, off the sheet. I, I'm not going to hold to that anymore. What's the promise to David? David, he says this in 2 Samuel uh, 7, 8, uh, 16. 
Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Is that pretty strong words? Alright. Your throne shall be established forever. Or at least until the millennial period comes along, and then it's over and I abolish the whole thing. Right? No. He said forever. He said forever. Now, why would he make a promise to David about a house and a throne that's forever and not keep it? Why would he give these folks land and not keep it? Why would he make a covenant with them and not keep it? What is the name of this place coming down out of heaven? New what? Is that a significant name or not? He could have chosen any name, couldn't he? The new Gary, Indiana. <laughs> they could use a new one. I've been there. I was born there, actually. I could tease it all I want. He calls it a name on purpose. Here's, here's why I think some people say, well, you just got to re, 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 uh, reinvigorate the old one so that God could keep his promises. You know, he's made promise about land, he's got to keep it. So you got to just refurbish the old one. That's the only way it's going to work. I've got a God greater than that. He doesn't need to work with the old material to make something new. He, he, he certainly is not dependent upon this earth. Or he depended upon this present heaven in order to do his will. I'm going to show you more about this next week. But I do start with the fact that he names this city Jerusalem, doesn't he? There is a reason for that term. He gives it a term that has significance. And notice, it's called New Jerusalem, not Reconditioned Jerusalem. Not uh, Renovated Jerusalem. Think of the history of this place. Jerusalem has not always had something good happen in it. Matter of fact, its origins go back to the Jebusites, which were among the Canaanite groups that lived in the land before Joshua and company came and pushed them out. The Jebusites lived in that territory. That was their town that they owned. It was captured by King David made into his royal city. It became the location of the temple. This is the same city in which Christ would be arrested. Christ would be tried. Christ would be crucified. There have been, over the history, terrible sinners and terrible events associated with the city of Jerusalem. Terrible things have happened from that place. Yet God calls it the beautiful city. Say, so, hmm, that's interesting. He gives it a special place in his plans. If he doesn't need an old earth and can replace it with a new earth, and if he doesn't need the old heavens and can replace it with a new heaven, then what do you think he could do with old Jerusalem? Make a new one. Does that nullify any of his promises? No, it does not. Matter of fact, it even shows you how much stronger they are. That he keeps his word even after getting rid of the old and starting the new. Those things remain. The promises he has set up. I think it's, it's a strong indication why he's going to give us something new. He's got to replace that old. The old has to go. So, we've got a new, uh, uh, a new residence set before us. A new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Now, with that comes what I'm going to call... A new relationship. 
a new relationship. And you say, well, we've got a wonderful relationship with God, don't we? Yes, we do. Thank the Lord for that. He has, he has called us His children. He has blessed us in all these ways. We can go through it and say, what a wonderful relationship. Can it get better? Well, down here we know. But let's look, look at what he says now. Verse number 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now in the original creation, back up. Man was made, put on this earth, right? Where did God live? Well, he already had his heaven, didn't he? We have God in heaven. Did he come down in fellowship with Adam? Yeah, he walked with him and, and things in the garden and talks about that. But man lived here and God lived there and they were not in the same location at all in that sense. And God was able to come down and fellowship with Adam until Adam sinned. You see, prior to that, we were on the earth and God came down to visit us. And then sin and the curse and all those things set this, this strain, this limitation on our fellowship. And at times in the Old Testament, God would come down and present himself on this earth in various ways. And we, we mark those and say, well, that's interesting. But he never stayed. He'd just come down and do that. He'd go and things of that nature. Until there was a miracle. We call it the first coming of Christ. Jesus was born. God in the flesh. What was the name they gave to him? Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. That was a whole new thing. God coming to dwell on the earth? Well, yes, he did. He came and he lived among us for some 33 years. And then he crucified and died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended up into heaven. Wait a minute. He's still... That's different, isn't it? That relationship, again, is, is different. He came to be with us. He came to dwell with us. And now he's gone. So he came temporarily to be with us here. But he made a promise. I'm going, I'm going to create a place for you, and where I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may also be, right? So he made a promise to us, and now we know it, that this is also our temporary place. For when we die, we go, depart, we go to be with him, right? With him in where? Present heavens. The place he's prepared for us. It's it's called a stop and rest place along the journey. That's the definition, technically, of the word mansion. We picture something great and enormous, I know. Uh, if you picture Motel 6, you've got a closer idea to the word. Alright? The word is a rest along your journey. God never promised that the present heaven was eternal. He said the present heaven is temporary. Okay? So... I'm sure it's magnificent. Motel 6, I just threw them in there. It's probably a whole lot better than a Motel 6. Probably moving up the, the rank a little bit there. But um, So, here it is. We, we had God come down to be among us. We go up there to be among Him when we go. But here's something brand new. What Revelation 21 is describing for us is something brand new. Some of us enjoy the idea of a brand new car. No one's ever driven it before, we say. Some people enjoy the idea of a brand new house. Nobody's ever lived in this house before. That's kind of a neat concept. But 
if we go to the present heaven, think about the present heaven for a minute. It's a place that's existed for as long as the earth or even longer. It's been inhabited by angels and saints for at least 6,000 years. It is the present abode of God. It is the home that Satan lived in before he fell. It is still a place he visits regularly. Now, I'm not minimizing it in any way. I'm just trying to simply say that when we go there, we're going to someone else's house. All right? The present heavens, we call it my father's house. Now, that's a beautiful way of saying it. But let me show you the difference between that and verse number 3 here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. You see a difference? What is it? Well, think of it this way. There's new heaven and new earth. No one has ever lived there before. No one lives there now. It's not created yet. When it is created, it is a place unused. When you go into it, it will be a place unused. When I go into it, it's a place unused. When God goes into it, guess what it is? A place unused. Think about this. It's different, isn't it? Something that we will share in common with God that no one has ever shared before. Adam was on this earth, God came down to him. We leave this earth, we go up to be with him. Here is a place where we both go, all of us go together, and no one's ever been there before. What a new concept. This relationship, I, I don't even know if I can fully express it. All right, It's a new place, a new thing, a new way that we will dwell with God that's never existed before. I can't fully explain it well. It goes beyond my limited ability because well, I'm, I'm more like the Old Testament guy, Manoah. You remember Manoah? Say, so who's that? That's Samson's dad. Samson, uh, his, his dad and his mom got a, a messenger one day. His mom actually did first. She says, you're going to have a son. His name's Samson. Gave him all the rules. Uh, she came and told her husband, Manoah says, God, uh, an angel or somebody came and talked to me about this the son I'm going to have. And, and Manoah was, was kind of uh, worked up a little bit about that because God didn't show him, just his wife. So he says, okay, God, come and tell me the same thing you told my wife. And God was gracious enough to do that. And he came to Manoah and he says, well, this is what I told her. This is what's going to happen and all these other things about having a son. And then Manoah came unglued. I just saw God. I'm going to die. His wife says, now, does that make a whole lot of sense? This is my paraphrase, but you probably have heard the same words. Uh, they go like this. If he told us all these plans and we're going to have this baby and all that, why would he kill us? And that was common sense. But that's the way people lived. In the Old Testament times, you've seen it over and over. person says, I've seen God, I'm going to die. I've seen God, I know I'm in trouble, I'm going to die. Can you imagine what this verse just said? He's going to dwell with us. Where's the fear? It's not there. Could you imagine that? This is just beyond me, really. It is. But that's a, a relationship that we do not know. But we will. 
It will come with a new experience, and I'm going to let this fall into next week too, because our time is up. But the next couple of verses, he starts talking about what won't be there. And you've seen the list before, but I'll just read it to you, and then we'll prime the pump for next week. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the first things have passed away. What a new experience this will be. These things gone. The only way to describe them is in the negative, because we're used to negatives. It says they're gone, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone. Now this is quite a place we're starting to describe, isn't it? We're going to have to take a couple more weeks to do it, obviously. But as we, as we close our thoughts today, I do want to talk to you about this particularly. Go back to Second Peter chapter 3. There is a reason for this kind of study. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us. And I, I do want us to take this aspect especially serious this morning. When we talk about a new heaven and a new earth, and it's more than just curiosity... This is true. It's written by our Lord. He says, this is faithful and true. It's a thing you're going to see. You're going to live there. You're going to experience these very things. And the, the reason why he tells us that in advance is so that we live like that now. Alright? Where are you a citizen of? You know what scripture calls us? We are citizens of heaven. Do we act like citizens of heaven? This is what Peter is bringing up. Second Peter 3, he says in verse 11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, he's talking about the heaven and the earth, the present ones, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Practice righteousness. That's all that operates up there is righteousness. That's what he's saying here. This is what our conduct should be. This is the godliness we should reflect. Because this is where we belong where we're going so practice living it now that's a, 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 a excellent exhortation for us today set that on your mind this week as you think about this new heaven and new earth that we're going to talk about again next week set it on your mind I will be living there how do I show it now let that be your thought for a week All right, Heavenly Father you know us all very, very well, and I'm glad you do. I'm also thankful that you set before us a description of what you have in store for us. That's exciting. We like to read about this. We long for this, Lord. We truly do. It's a sign of our relationship with you, and our, our, our trust in what you have promised. We shall see these things. There's our hope. There's our faith. Lord, also, may our behavior correspond to that, too. You know how we live throughout this week before us. May it reflect the work that you're doing. You have made us righteous. May we live righteous. You have made us godly. Let us live godly. Keep our minds focused on things above. And may our lives reflect it, we pray. 
challenge us with these words. In Jesus' name, amen.